Hello, I'm Jody Butts. Welcome to the 2020 Network presented by Interac. As I reflect on where we're at in this pandemic, what strikes me the most is how so many of our challenges, as well as their solutions, come down to interconnectedness or joined up thinking. This is true of the transmission of the virus and stopping it. And this is especially true when we think about climate and the human species disproportionate impact on it. To discuss the existential threat of climate change, today I'm joined by Gerald Butts. Gerald has successfully led Canadian and global organizations in the public and private sectors for 20 years. As the Principal Secretary to Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau from 2015 to 2019, Gerald was responsible for providing executive direction on the development, implementation, and communication of the government's agenda. This work included overseeing economic policy, the negotiation of the Paris Climate Accord, and the creation of Canada's first national climate change plan, which included an economy-wide price on carbon. Gerald played a major role in managing relations with the U.S. administrations of Barack Obama and Donald Trump, as well as in the renegotiation of NAFTA. Prior to his work with the Prime Minister, Gerald served as Policy Secretary and Principal Secretary to the Premier of the Province of Ontario, where he led the implementation of the government's $100 billion core agenda. Gerald was also the CEO of WWF Canada, where he was responsible for international engagement and global projects to decarbonize the supply chains of multinational companies. He is currently a consultant with the Eurasia Group, maintains a private practice advising on strategic investments in climate mitigation and resilience and artificial intelligence. And importantly, since July 31st, 1999, we have been married. Thanks so much for joining me today, Gerald. I'm glad you cleared up the fact that we are not uh, indeed brother and sister, as has been speculated. I know. It, it makes the fact that we've had children just, you know, a little bit more understandable and a little less oogie. It would indeed be a real scandal. <laughs> okay, so let's start off talking about climate. Is the planet's climate at risk or are we insufficiently managing climate risks to the way we live and work? Well, at a very high level, both things, uh, the answer is both of those things are true. We have put the climate at risk, at least insofar as it um, will be uh, resilient and productive enough that human beings can live within it prosperously and safely. And that's uh, um, a unique historical moment we find ourselves in. Humans have never lived in a climate like the one we've created since the Industrial Revolution. But we've also done an, an insufficient um, amount of work in preparing uh, to adjust to the changes that we've engendered in the client, to the climate. Uh, both those things are really important. I think the debate over climate change or about what to do about climate change, more appropriately put, has changed quite a bit itself in the past uh, 20 years since I've been um, actively working on the issue. Uh, the truth is we have baked enough change, uh, enough climate change into the atmosphere that our kids, um, <laughs> I usually say that figuratively, but in this case, I actually mean it, uh, our kids, yours and mine, um, will be growing up in a very different uh, climate than humans have ever experienced. And we've ill-prepared our institutions to um, uh, adjust to that change climate. Uh, on the one hand, and on the other, we're still doing the kinds of things that created that change in the first place. So we need to uh, mitigate the 
causes of climate change, and we need to invest in adjusting um, uh, to a changed climate. So in, in essence, uh, the answer is both. Right, right. And, you know, we've certainly seen, um, you know, some of these uh, responses to both, you know, mitigating the causes of climate change and, you know, how, how we can mitigate uh, the impacts that are already kind of unfurling themselves um, in the acceleration of the transition towards cleaner energies during this pandemic. Um, you know, I've heard you frequently say, and certainly guests on the podcast have said it as well, you know, coronavirus is an accelerant of pre-existing trends. Um, but what's behind the acceleration towards cleaner energies? Like there's nothing per se about the coronavirus that necessarily makes you think that that particular trend would be accelerated. That's true. I think what's behind the, the trend are two things. One is the macro, uh, final, finally, the macro apprehension that the ways in which we've created energy for the past 200 years have uh, changed, have uh, radically disrupted the climate. So we uh, need to move to more, to cleaner, more resilient forms of uh, renewable forms of energy. Um, but, uh, you know, when I started working on climate issues with uh, Premier McGinty back in the early part of the first decade of this century, uh, the the way we talked about climate change was very different. Um, we retired about 7,500 megawatts of coal-fired generation in Ontario over the period of about 10 years, uh, a little bit more than 10 years. And I remember vividly when uh, then-candidate Dalton McGuinty was uh, promoting that policy to Ontarians. He talked about it in the context of local public health issues that I remember vividly him uh, asking the rhetorical question whether you could walk into an Ontario elementary school classroom and find a kid, find uh, find a classroom that didn't have a kid with a puffer in it. Uh, childhood asthma rates were exploding at the time. And of course, the particulate matter emitted from burning coal for electricity was a primary cause of this. So we sold the policy, uh, I think, rightly on the grounds that it was going to improve local public health. Uh, and of course, it has. There are now no smog days in Ontario, and uh, childhood asthma rates have declined uh, precipitously. And those are a direct result of that policy change. It also, by the way, happened to be the most, at that stage, uh, the largest climate mitigation project in the world. Um, but now that people are seeing the effects of climate change more directly, we live next to the Ottawa River, uh, of course, and um, uh, people are seeing the longer and hotter summers, uh, weather changes, or having maybe the weirdest weather in world history as we have this conversation uh, with a 100-degree heat wave in Siberia. Uh, it's People are appreciating the direct impacts on, on the climate, but uh, it is true that many of the things that cause climate change also cause a lot of other bad things uh, locally to people's health. Yeah, without question. And look, there's there's an active discussion happening right now where, you know, uh, we see um, 
we see people drawing the links between infectious diseases and changing climate. You know, so anyone who's seen the movie Contagion um, will see, you know, a bat, you know, drop a piece of fruit that is then um, consumed by um, livestock. That, of course, is then, you know, ultimately consumed by Gwyneth Paltrow. And, right. But the interesting piece about the bats are that, you know, as we, as we, you know, reduce the amount of uh, wild spaces that we have as we domesticate more and deforest, we push, you know, uh, mammals like bats into closer contact with us. And therefore, you know, a, a fruit bat dropping that piece of fruit, you know, that's then consumed by a pig just statistically becomes more likely. And the same thing is true of ticks, you know, just to bring it closer to home since um, we don't have fruit bats here. But, uh, you know, the proliferation of ticks and all the diseases like Lyme disease that, that, that they carry. But I specifically wanted to ask you about deforestation because I know that you spent time, um, you know, looking at the impacts of palm oil on deforestation. And I was hoping you could maybe share some of your reflections uh, on that trip. Um, uh, I can't even remember exactly when that trip happened. So when when did that happen? And, and what, how have your reflections either changed or, or, or stayed the same about that trip? Uh, I'll, I'll get into that. That was at, to Borneo in 2010. Um, the, the point you're making about the closer interaction of human beings with species they didn't historically interact with uh, on frequent, uh, very frequently, is of course the story of um, uh, novel viruses. That uh, the the basic fact of uh, the time we find ourselves living in is that there are fewer wild spaces than there ever have been, and the more that we humans encroach on wilderness, and the more that we come into contact with species that our species has not historically been in contact with, the more likely it's going to be that we have these kinds of uh, um, uh, zoonotic uh, diseases that cause our species uh, very grave, grievous harm. Um, I think that what you've seen in the environmental movement really, I guess you could say 50, 60 years now, um, in fact, uh, we were both born in the early 70s and we were kind of born at the same time that the environment, environmental movement was uh, going global. And it was, it was for a good reason that people were becoming more and more aware that um, the problems we were creating through our method of economic development were piling up faster than the solutions that we were uh, developing to accommodate them. You know, it used to be that we thought we were when we developed a forest or when we uh, cut down a forest to develop an industry or uh, dammed a river or um, whatever form of economic development we pursued, we used to think that we were outsourcing those the problems that were created as a consequence either down the river or um, to some other place. The truth is we were outsourcing them to another time and we just happened to be living through that time now where we've created more problems than we've created solutions. And much of uh, the work that 
I've been involved in over the course of my career or been around over the course of my career has been with people who've dedicated themselves to creating a better equilibrium between um, the downside consequences of economic development uh, and the ability of the environment to absorb those problems. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I remember um, just, you know, listening to you speak when you're head of WWF is, you know, always talking about the human species, like just really sort of recognizing our our place in in an ecosystem because we don't always talk like that right we often no. you know you know tend to speak more in terms of you know human beings as being you know both the narrator and hero <laughs> of uh, of our world yeah and and we like to think of ourselves as separate from nature when in fact we're embedded within it and completely dependent on it dependent on it i one of the the sort of parlor games or table games i like to play with colleagues and I've, I've asked is this simple question I've asked just about um, anyone who's listening to this who's worked with me has probably heard me ask them this question uh, and it's what is the biggest thing that has happened since you've been on planet earth what's the biggest story of your life and so many people you know gravitate toward geopolitical events uh depending on your age, where were you when John F. Kennedy was killed? Um, 9-11 is a very popular answer to that question. The rise of China, other people will say that. And normally, um, uh, when I tell people what I think is the biggest thing that's happened in my lifetime, they kind of blink and say, I didn't realize that happened. Generally, nine out of ten people agree. And uh, my answer to the question is, I was born in 1971. And in the time that I've been on this planet, uh, the planet has lost more than half of its life. And um, we see that expressed in charismatic campaigns to save one species or another. But, uh, you know, I had my eyes open to this when I was at the World Wildlife Fund. Every couple, of, every two years, WWF does a landmark study about the state of life on planet Earth and measured um, by species and biomass, uh, the planet has lost, I think it's almost 60% of the life that was present when the study was started and just happened to be in the year that I was born in 1971. That's an incredible thing when you take a step back and think about it. It's almost impossible to, to comprehend. Um, though, though, if you think long enough about it, you can, you know, even, you know, over the course of my own lifetime, you know, the different experiences, of, you know, between the number of birds or the life in the ocean or, um, you know, you, 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 you start to feel like, like, like you can appreciate um, the change, even even just a little bit from, from your own kind of narrow perspective. Oh, for sure. I mean, most Canadians don't uh, realize this, but the biggest human-caused ecosystem collapsed, collapse in history happened off the coast of where I grew up in Nova Scotia. It's the the ground fishery collapse in the uh, um, Northwest Atlantic Ocean. If you were an alien uh, and you came to planet Earth on, in the year, say, 1850, and then returned now uh, and looked at the amount of life in the Northwest part of the Atlantic Ocean, the only conclusion you could safely, you could reasonably draw is that someone took a big vacuum cleaner and sucked all the life out of the ocean. And that, that actually happened, and it happened over the course of 
um, a very short period of time when you start to think about it in the context of uh, um, biological timescales. Yeah. So how do we turn this ship around where we're at this unique point, right, where um, uh, we're clearly going to have to um, continue to invest? So we've gone through a stimulus, I guess, uh, phase uh, in terms of you know, government actions anyways. And now we're going to have to enter, I think, into a bit of, of an investment phase um, as we, you know, seek to, you know, help our economies recover um, from the pandemic while we're in the pandemic. So how do we leverage that opportunity to, you know, uh, more closely align with uh, Paris targets? Well, I think the good, there's a lot of good news too, and it sounds a lot of what we've been talking about so far has been the, um, you know, the pessimistic side of the story, the downside of the enormous benefit that humans have generated for each other through a couple of centuries of unprecedented economic growth. Um, and we certainly, I'm certainly not one, as you know, who thinks that there's an automatic and necessary negative trade-off between the environment and the economy. I think that um, while we've created all these environmental problems, we've also developed the technological uh, capabilities to solve them. So it's it's certainly not true, as many would uh, argue, that there's an automatic trade-off between the environment and the economy. It's just uh, consequent. It's a it's a question of more fully appreciating the problems we call uh, we cause with economic development and devoting more um, uh, brain power to solving those problems. and And the good news is a lot of money uh, has been invested over the past 20, 30 years in doing exactly that. I look at um, what's happened uh, in partic- in particular with renewable energy, where 15 years ago, when we were uh, retiring coal in Ontario, we pretty much had to rely on baseload nuclear um, and uh, gas plants in order to do that. Uh, Whereas now, uh, we've had this rapid development in solar and battery storage technology that is making um, that particular combination, which is 100% renewable, uh, cost competitive with fossil fire generation uh, all over the world, and the um, the the cost of it will go nowhere but down. So there's really important things happening in the world, and there's lots to be optimistic about. I think the the key is to couple our optimism with a real sense of impatience that um, we don't we no longer have an infinite or even a, um, we no longer have a long, the luxury of a long-term wait-and-see uh, approach to these things that from a public policy perspective and an investment perspective, um, uh, we need to align and make sure these prob- the, these solutions get adopted and adopted at a scale where they're going to make an appreciable difference in our species' footprint on the planet. Thinking about that need for urgency, what's also so so making you know the the right investments, and as you say, not necessarily you know viewing it as a trade-off, 
but there also needs to be, you know, a just transition as, you know, two people who grow grew up in parts of Canada that have both, you know, benefited from and maybe even suffered under <laughs> to a certain yeah. extent, you know, government uh, transition assistance, you know, uh, how do how do we get that right? Well, I mean, I, you know, my perspective on this, I think, and I, I think you're exactly right in the assessment that there weren't a lot of people where I grew up on Cape Breton Island done many favors by trying to keep the coal mining industry um, alive at scale beyond uh, the beyond its natural lifespan, so to speak. I think that the key is, as always, to uh, double down on people and, and and focus on the people whose lives are being disrupted by these giant economic changes. I think there's there's always going to be a market for people who claim that they can recreate the past or they can extend the present. But um, the only way to really shape um, a more uh, resilient future is to invest in people's education uh, and to give them the tools that they need to recreate prosperous communities for themselves, their families, and uh, um, the and their uh, their communities. That's the that's the key. That's the secret sauce, and it always has been, and it's never been easy. But um, you know, one of the reasons I'm a small L liberal is because I believe that uh, no matter what the circumstances of your birth, that every human being has the capability to uh, shape and improve the world around herself or himself. And the key to doing that is to invest in their knowledge and learning. This has been, you know, kind of one of the lessons of COVID that when people are vulnerable, any big changes only enhances that vulnerability. Is there is there is there an ability to enlist the people who are going to be hurt by the change, or is it solely, you know, we just have to focus to to lessen the negative impacts of the change in the economy on those on on the people who who are you know deriving their livelihoods from from the sectors that up to this point were thriving? Yeah, I think that's that is the the hardest part of the question, right? And when you do an honest accounting of uh, the history of people trying, of governments and private industries trying to manage these transitions for people, there aren't a lot of success stories. And that's a hard truth. It doesn't mean that you should give up. And it doesn't mean that you should pretend that things are not changing. I think that um, if there's any, it's a cliche, but if there's any constant in um uh, those kinds of sectors of the economy, it's change itself and uh, uh, people adapt to it. There are a lot of people who work in the resource sector in Western Canada. Um, you know, I went to high school with a lot of people who worked in the resource sector in Western Canada and they took extraordinary risks and uh, with their personal lives and their families to go out and engage that work because that's what engage in that work. So no, look, I mean, that is the hard, that is the really hard uh, question. And uh, I personally believe that people will 
both create opportunities and um, gravitate toward where the opportunities are are durable and uh, reliable. So it's it's a hard question because the most difficult part of any economic disruption are the families that get hurt by it. And I have been um, present for enough uh, calls between leaders of government and people who've just lost their jobs or um, heads of companies who are calling to let uh, governments know that they're going to unfortunately have to lay uh, hundreds, if not thousands of people off in one industry or another. You grew up in Windsor, Ontario. You've been Mm -hmm. through this cycle many, many times uh, with your dad at Ford's. And it's really hard. It is the hardest thing uh, in the world. Um, at the end of the day, though, you're not doing anybody any favors uh, by uh, painting a picture of a future that you know is not going to happen. Even even if you only narrowly look at it uh, from the point of view that many of the people, um, you know, working in in those jobs, like I think of, you know, like my own dad, you know, his advice and in fact, he forbade uh, my brother and I from ever working at Ford's uh, because he knew he wanted us to not only just to, you know, get an education for the sake of it, of an education, um, but to be able to pursue careers that were, you know, outside of of an industry that had so many cyclical ups and downs until it no longer had ups. <laughs> Yeah, look, I I think that that is the key point, right? I mean, you hear a lot of caricatures about um, certain kinds of work uh, in the press. A lot of people who've never really been very close to manual labor like to romanticize it, let me put it that way. And I remember vividly when I was a kid, whenever we would get, one of us would get a bad grade or um, a grade that my mom or my dad or my aunt thought was beneath our capabilities. My dad or my mom would always say, well, I can always get you a job in the pit. And the pit was what people called the coal mine in my hometown. And the message was really vivid and clear. I'm doing this kind of work in the hopes that you don't have to do this kind of work. And none of that is to in any way denigrate that work or the people who do that work. Um, You know, my dad was one of the most intelligent people I've ever met, a small handful of the most intelligent people I've ever met. And he mined coal for 40 years and he didn't complain about it. Uh, In fact, he loved the camaraderie of the men. And at that point, they were certainly mostly men. And he made the best out of the circumstances that um, he was born into and the opportunities that were available to him. But he sure as heck did not want to see his kids have uh, similarly uh, narrow opportunities. And that's why they spent so much time and effort, uh, amongst other things in making sure that we took education as seriously as we did as a family. So a lot of people, you know, Jody, you've heard this over the course of your life too, who have never really 
worked with their hands and their lives who romanticized that kind of work for political purposes. And if you've grown up in that environment, you know that it's work to be proud of. Um, and you also know how difficult it is on the people who do it and their families. A study that caught both of our eyes through through a friend was uh, by Erica Chenoweth. Right. She, she's the political science at Harvard University. And and her research, you know, demonstrates one that nonviolent strategies are the most powerful way of shaping world politics, uh, which is interesting and, you know, obviously good and a relief to hear. But the other important point she makes is that while, you know, like the dynamics of each situation, you know, of course matter, um, but that it takes around three and a half percent of the population actively participating in protests to ensure serious political change. Do you think we have that three and a half percent as it relates to, you know, mitigating climate change? I think we're getting there. I really do. I think that um, uh, Greta Thunberg and her movement struck a chord with people precisely because it was nonviolent. And I think the same can be said to date for the Black Lives Matter protests in the aftermath of uh, the George Floyd murder in Minnesota. I think that there's something deeply profound about watching uh, your fellow human beings all mass take great physical risk um, and refuse to in any way defend themselves physically. I think that that strikes a chord with people. Um, and there's a long history of it that's detailed in that really interesting study. Uh, I think we're, we're close to that tipping point, and I think we are definitely on climate change. I think one of the most hopeful... Um, one of our mutual friends a couple of years ago said that his uh, his New Year's resolution was to spend more time with people 15 years younger than him than 15 than people 15 years older than him. And I I am I've had the benefit whether it be in the private sector or in politics or in uh, uh, running a large national charity. I've worked with a lot of people younger than me over the course of my life and. I, it's, there's always a, um, a market for people who want to run down the generations behind them, but I'm filled with great optimism by both the millennials and the Zoomer generation. I guess our kids would be part of that. I think that the tipping point we're really going to hit is demographic. And um, all of these kids who realize that they have real skin in the game, that um, and I think this was the, the voice that uh, Greta Thunberg was cha- is channeling. All these kids who look at this set of circumstances with the climate and say, this is my life, right? This is not a policy instrument. This is not a discussion. This is my life. And I'm going to have to live in this world that has been created for me. And therefore, uh, I have a kind of special right to say the kinds of things that I'm saying. And you who have already lived, uh, you know, in our case, a few decades on the planet, um, have a special responsibility to listen and to change and to do something. Because when 
you're dead and gone. I'm going to be your age and I will be dealing with the consequences of your actions. And I, to me, that is a deeply profound argument. And I think anybody with a modicum of generosity of spirit will hear that in the spirit in which it's meant, it's meant to be heard. Yeah, I certainly, you know, obviously so much tragedy related to, to the pandemic. Um, but I do feel that, you know, I, I think that sense of interconnectedness has really been brought out by the pandemic. And I think someone like Greta Thunberg, you know, makes a powerful case, as you say, um, but also, you know, makes me think of those uh, physicians advocating for the closing down of the coal plants to right. lessen asthma rates. Like, I, I just feel like there's there, there, there's some similar alignment there. And so I hope, you know, um, uh, the, the climate strikes and, and all the people who support them are as successful as, you know, the, the physicians who are trying to bring down asthma rates and the politicians who listen to them. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And there there was um, uh, one of my heroes, as you know, is Ken Dryden. And he had a lovely, lovely piece in the paper the other day when he was, he was, he was just talking about his own reflections at having spent this much time in relative solitude and what it, uh, what conclusions he was drawing about the world and when we're at our best as uh, humans, both individually and relating to one another, it's, you know, it's when we have a sense of, and we all have uh, failed to meet this bar, myself included, um, when we have a sense of humility about the world and the forces that are shaping our lives and when we rely upon science and when we rely upon knowledge and we approach these vast pools of uh, information that human beings have created for themselves over the course of the past several hundred years to try and better understand the world around us. When we look at that from with a sense of humility and uh, stop putting our own egos and... Um, uh, um, I'm thinking of uh, we are we're <laughs> we're having a micro version of this as we raise two uh, well soon to be two teenagers, but you know one of the things we we try and teach our kids all the time is don't look for immediate satisfaction, right? The secret to uh, or um, immediate gratification, the secret to happiness over the long term in life is to invest effort in achieving the things that are really important to you. And I think that that is true um, at a, you know, exponential scale when we're talking about uh, problems like climate change, that we've got to grow up a little bit, you know? We've got to realize that uh, um, getting what we think we want every minute uh, is not necessarily good for us in the long run. And I think that these kids are, ironically, they're performing, the, they're acting out the role that we should be acting out for them. That's so true. I never really thought of it that way. Gerald, 
Thank you for the discussion today and for helping us better understand the interconnectedness of climate and pandemics, what a just transition could and should look like, and the influence of social movements in policy making. Thank you so much.